Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So Acts 4, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel— It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you? Or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, and against his anointed one. 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. All right, so Pastor Bob has been teaching through Acts. We started Acts about a month ago. And we're, as Chuck said, right before he started reading the passage for today, we're in the middle of chapter 3 to 4. And 3 through 4 is, is an account of a series of things that happened between 3 p.m. on one day and probably noon the next day. We don't know for sure exactly when the, the trial took place on the second day, but they arrested him that evening and had the trial on the second day. So um, last week, Pastor Bob... Where am I supposed to point with this, Mark? There we go. All right. So last week, Pastor Bob uh, started into this and taught through chapter 3. And he had this slide up at the beginning. That's 1 Peter 3, verse 15. that says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the reason he had this verse up is because in chapters 3 and 4 of Acts, we see Peter, the man who wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we see him full of the Holy Spirit, practicing what he's going to write later. He hadn't written this yet. But we see Peter having opportunities to give a reason for the hope that's within him. By the way, before I leave this verse, this is our verse theme verse for the Kids Club on Wednesday nights. Sanctify means to set apart. So that's an important part of this, setting apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Have no other Lord, no other master. Having done that, then always be ready to give a defense. The word that's there for give a defense is the, the Greek word that we get our word apologet, 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 apologetics, apologetics from. It's apologia in the Greek. And it means to give a reason, to give an answer, to make your case. And then what's the case for that we're making? The reason. It's for the hope that is in us. Christ is our hope. He's our hope in being forgiven. He's our hope in being assured eternal life and being with Him forever. So, that's a Kids Club verse. Peter wrote it. And it's Peter who we see taking advantage of the opportunities he has. He has three opportunities across these two chapters. The first is in addressing the lame man. The lame man is at the entrance to the temple. He's begging. He wants money. And Peter sees him, has a short exchange with him. I don't got any money, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the lame man jumps up and starts... Walking, leaping, and praising God. By the way, I found out, so I want to check one more time. We did this at, the, at a morning watch at camp this past family camp. 
How many of you know the kid song that comes from that verse? Walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, we got a little more strength this time because we have Zoe and we have a few woos who are not here at family camp. Actually, y'all were at family camp, weren't you? Anyway, it was only like about a fifth of you that knew that. I'm diverging. It's it's a gap in your upbringing if you didn't learn that song growing up. It's a great song. Anyway, the lame man's healed. And, And he rises up and he goes into the temple with them. He sticks with them. They're the ones that have, in the name of Christ, brought this healing. And so he wants to be with them. And he stays with them. And so that's the first time. Peter has an opportunity to help a man by giving him money. He doesn't have the money to meet his physical need. But he shares with him something that's even better in healing him. It never says that the man comes to faith in Christ. But as I talked about at, um, at family camp in that morning watch, it's very likely. Because he sticks with them through the message that Peter gives in chapter 3 to the crowd. And then through what he is said with the Sanhedrin. And it's a very safe assumption that he was not only healed physically, but he was healed spiritually. So then Peter addresses the crowd. And he has a wonderful message. I mean, well, really, it's a biting message, similar to some of what he had said in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Um, Picking it up in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, But you, you could picture him pointing his finger at the crowd. The crowd has seen this man come into the temple, and they recognize him because he's been lame for over 40 years since since he was born. Scripture says since his mother's womb he was lame. Later in chapter 4, we're told that he was over 40 years old. So, four decades. Now, he probably hasn't been outside the temple that long, but he's been outside the temple for a long time, since whenever he became able to beg to help with meeting his needs. And so people, family, people, friends, we don't know for sure, they've been bringing him regularly. Everybody recognizes him. And so a crowd forms. And so Peter is addressing this crowd. And in verse 14, he says, You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's referring back to what happened when Jesus was arrested, tried by the Sanhedrin, handed over to Herod, came bounced back to the Sanhedrin, and then handed over to Pontius Pilate, who was going to release him because he could find no guilt in him. And the religious leaders got this mob together, of which some in this crowd might have been part of that. And they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. These people, whether they were directly in that crowd or they knew about this, I mean, they they weren't in the crowd but knew about it, everybody knows what Peter's talking about here. So he's telling them directly, the holy and righteous one, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. That would have been... um, Help me. Barabbas, yeah. Barabbas granted in place. Verse 15, But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. You can see him and John. We're witnesses. He's preaching. John's going, yep, I was there. They're witnesses. 16, On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. And he's going to be pointing right there to the man. Strengthen this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now Peter turns it. He's been direct, blunt, in their faces. Now he says, Brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then he says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So here this crowd is gathered together. They have not necessarily asked Peter to explain what's going on, but they're amazed. The scripture tells us they're amazed and you can... You can just read into it that they're wondering, how does this man walk? We've been seeing him every day for years outside the temple. How is it that he's walking and leaping? He's praising God. He's attributing it to God that he's now well. And so Peter jumps in. It's an opportunity. And he tells them about Christ. And he gets to the point of repent. What are, what are we to do about it? In, in Acts 2, it's a wonderful message on the day of Pentecost. The crowd says, what should we do? After he's been, you know, pointing the finger at them and, and the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction of sin. Here, he just goes ahead and tells them. Doesn't wait for them to say, what, what, what should we do? But he's giving them the application. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So, many believe and are saved. Last week, Bob talked about the, uh, an estimate ballpark of maybe 1,500 men became believers here. What we know for sure is they were approximately 3,120 at the end of chapter 2, the number of believers, men, women, and children. And now, in the end of chapter 3, it's 5,000 men that have become believers. Actually, that's in, in chapter 4, verse 4. The number of men who have believed is now 5,000, not counting the women and children. So, Approximately 1,500 probably have become believers of men, and there may have, and there's likely been women and children that have become believers too, so it could be higher than that. So Peter has taken advantage of both of these opportunities, and he and John get arrested. The Sadducees, notice in, in 4 verse 1, the Sadducees, if you remember from their interactions with Jesus, I'm sure you've heard it, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in an afterlife. And so they took particular issue, as did the priest in 4 verse 1, with what Peter is saying, and they arrest Peter and John. And at the uh, morning watch at family camp, I speculated that they may have even arrested the lame man. We don't know. There's nothing here that says he went home and came back the next day. All we're told is he was with them, and the next day he's with them. But they arrest Peter and John for sure. And then the next morning, they hold the trial. And so that's where, that's where I'm going to be dwelling. Now, in the theme of addressing, there's one more addressing that's in the passage that Chuck read, and that's addressing God. This is not just by Peter, though. It's this wonderful prayer that they have later in chapter 4. And it's Peter and John and all their companions. Scripture says they went to their own. We don't know if that's the rest of the apostles only or if it's the rest of the apostles plus a bunch of other believers. But it's a group of believers, and so I wanted to keep the addressing theme that Bob started, so addressing God. But that's not only Peter. All right, so the trial. we got five major parts to this trial. You've got the court that's having the hearing. You've got the question that's before them, the testimony that's presented. Then a dilemma results, and after the dilemma, we have the result of the entire thing. So I'm going to work my way through this. First, with the court... I asked, I asked Chuck as he was going by what translation he was using because most, of your tran- most translations that you guys are probably using don't actually use the word Sanhedrin. The NIV, 
the Legacy Standard Bible and one or two other Bibles that probably nobody here is using, um, use the word Sanhedrin. Um, so chapter 4, verse 15 says, talks about the council. They brought them, uh, they set them outside the council in order to discuss things. And this is after we've had the question and the testimony. That word council, that's translated that way in the New King James, is the Greek word synedrion. And from that comes Sanhedrin. Uh, in the Greek, it means council or assembly. But if you remember, the word for church in the Greek is ecclesia, which means assembly. This is a different type. The Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, that is a council that forms to investigate and adjudicate something, to make a decision, okay? Investigate and or make a decision. And, and so from, from outside the Bible, from other historical sources such as the Jewish Talmud and uh, Josephus, we know that they had local Sanhedrins in cities that were large enough. So, for instance, Nazareth was a small village, probably didn't have a Sanhedrin. But Capernaum probably did. It was a city, a city on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was big enough. In their local Sanhedrins, their local councils, they would have 23 of the leading men. And the one in charge, in, in the Jewish um, words, they, his title was Avet, Avet Dim. Avet Dim was his title. And he would be, that would be their local council that would take care of affairs related to their area. We don't see that in the Bible, at least not to my knowledge. We see no evidence of that in the Bible. That's what we know from non-biblical sources. But from both in the Bible and from non-biblical sources like the Talmud and Josephus, um, we know that in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin that met there, they referred to that as the Great Sanhedrin, and it was formed by 71 men, 70 of the religious leaders of their day with a heavy emphasis on the high priest and priestly lineage people, okay? And the high priest himself was the 71st. He was the leader, the head of the group. They functioned in a multiple role sort of thing. They were like the Supreme Court for Israel in that the local Sanhedrins had issues they couldn't resolve. It would bubble up to the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, uh, but they had other functions, too. They were the local Sanhedrin for Jerusalem. So all the local affairs for Jerusalem were coming before the 71. And then they, were also, they also had a political role because they were under Roman control, Roman jurisdiction. And Rome actually had trump over who was the high priest. The, San, the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem would choose the high priest, uh, it had the role of uh, putting on trial a king if they had had their own king. Uh, it had the role of, of uh, basically putting on trial and removing the high priest if there was cause for that. We think of uh, in our Constitution, Congress has given them power to impeach the president. Our Supreme Court doesn't have that power. They, had, they wouldn't have used the word impeach, but they had effectively that power for the high priest. So they had sort of a political role within their own entity as Israel, but then with underneath the Roman rule, the Romans actually picked some of the high priests and caused them to be removed. And in all cases, Rome had approval authority over who they picked as a high priest. So 
when we see in verse 6 that Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, these are people in Annas's family, his kids. So, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but over in some of the Gospels, you would read that Caiaphas was the high priest during the trial of Jesus. What's going on is that Annas was the high priest from... Um, I don't have it right in front of me. From he, got, he was removed by the Romans as high priest in 15 A.D. So I think it was 6 to 15 A.D., a nine-year period, where he was high priest. But then his sons, five of his sons, and Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, they were priests. And I don't, I don't know the full order of that. But over many years, the high priest was one of his sons, or it was Caiaphas. Caiaphas had the longest run of that. It was from, I think, 16... 18, 18 A.D. to 36 A.D., where Caiaphas was the high priest. So, in Scripture, when you see them talk about Annas as high priest, he was what the Jews viewed as effectively the high priest. He was pulling the puppet strings behind his sons and his son-in-law as they exercised the office of high priest. So, that's what's going on. Um, So, anyway, that's the Sanhedrin. The question that they put... To Peter, in verse 7, is by what power, by what name have you done this? I said to Peter, they put this to Peter and John. And that's what they're focused on. What name, what power have you done this healing this man? And then we get to the testimony by Peter. He says, starting in verse um, 9... He first wants to make sure, he restates the question to make sure he's answering the right question. If we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, they hadn't actually stated that. If we're on trial today for the benefit done to the sick man, making him well, let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, if we stopped right here, he's actually done a couple of things to make it specific. Jesus' name in the Hebrew was Yeshua. That was his given name. We've, uh, Jesus is our English translation of that. Yeshua was a very common name. The most common name in Israel at the time was Simon. And there's two Simons that show up among Jesus' 12 apostles. Yeshua was a fairly common name. So when you say Yeshua of Nazareth, you're now narrowing it down. There might have been more than one Yeshua in Nazareth, but there wouldn't have been a whole lot. Um, Yeshua Christ, Christ is our English translation of Christos in the Greek, which means anointed one. And that, in turn, is the translation of Messiah. Messiah is our English word from coming from the Hebrew of Messiah, which means anointed one. In both Greek, Messiah, I mean, Hebrew, Messiah, Greek, Christ, they both mean anointed one, which is something that signifies a king. The king would be anointed. So he's saying Jesus king from Nazareth. So he's narrowing it down. But, just so you don't be confused, again, he's talking to these religious leaders, but so no one's confused, whom you crucified. And you can just see him pointing his finger at him as he says this. You crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now it's so narrow, there's no possible confusion. But this matters. We want to believe in the right Christ. Paul takes this up with a little bit different angle in 2 Corinthians 11. I think it's verse 14, somewhere in there, about being careful not to believe another gospel and follow a different Christ. 
Peter's making sure that they know which Yeshua it is. And more importantly, he's leading them to the point that he rose from the dead. That's what he got arrested for. He and John were teaching the people the resurrection of the dead and specifically that Christ had risen. He puts this right back to them. So, then in verse 11, Steve was going through messianic prophecies earlier. In verse 11, Peter picks up one coming from Psalm 118. He says, he, talking about Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. Now, if you read that in Psalm 118, I I don't know at their time if they understood that to be a messianic prophecy. If I just read Psalm 118, I don't necessarily conclude it's messianic. But Peter knew that it was because Jesus made it messianic in Matthew 21. At the end of a parable where Jesus' point is about the people of a kingdom not appreciating their king, the metaphor going on there is God, is king of Israel, and the religious leaders haven't appreciated that. And the parable ends with them killing the owner's son, which would be Christ. Jesus says to them in Matthew 21, 42, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter scatter him like dust." Now, note this next verse. I'm over in Matthew 21, verse 45. says, And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, the chief priests are in this crowd. The Pharisees, some of them, are probably in this crowd, in the Sanhedrin. They understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. This is right as the... I think we're in, I'm checking real quick, but I think we are, yeah, this is in the last week. The triumphant entry on Palm Sunday had already happened. That's happening in the week where just a day or two after that, they're going to arrest Jesus and then have him crucified. So Peter in verse 11 of Acts 4 is quoting to them a verse from Psalm 118 that Jesus had used with these same people. Okay? So it's very... Um, blunt to them. The point is they have missed the Messiah. The cornerstone is what the builders would use to then build the building properly. Without building properly from the cornerstone, it would be all crooked, might have a bad foundation. The cornerstone was critical. And they have rejected, they haven't just missed the cornerstone, they have rejected Jesus the Messiah, the cornerstone. So, we get to... um, I think I missed a verse there. I guess not. Uh Uh-oh. Now we're going crazy. All right. So anyway, ah, I'll leave all that there. The point is that it's the crucified and risen Jesus Christ whose name has been used to heal this person. It's the power of Christ that has healed him. So this leads to the dilemma. It's not a dilemma for Peter. It's a dilemma for the Sanhedrin. And uh, so, all right, Acts 4.12 is there. Before we get to the dilemma, Peter goes on and adds something they didn't ask for. 
Their question was, in whose name have you done this? And they've already answered, he's already answered that. They're crucified and risen Jesus Christ. But in verse 12, he goes further and he says, There is salvation, there, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's Peter taking the opportunity in front of him and taking it all the way to the gospel. They have missed the Messiah. They have rejected the Messiah. They handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. They are refusing to believe that he rose from the dead. But he's telling them there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, only in the name of Christ. I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. So then we get to the dilemma, starting in verse 13. There's two parts to the dilemma. The first is that Peter and John had been with Jesus. This is a dilemma for the religious leaders. They can't argue with these eyewitnesses. It's clear to them, starting in verse 13, they, they, they realize it. These two guys have been with Jesus. They have heard Him speak. They have seen Him do miracles. They have seen Him be crucified. They have seen Him rise from the dead. They can't argue with that. The second thing is they can't deny the miracle. Verse 16, in their own counsel, they say to themselves, the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Verse 22 is the one that says the man, remember the lame man, formerly lame man, is standing right there with Peter and John. He's over 40 years old. Now, there were several gates to enter the temple, but Jerusalem was not that big a city. Over several decades, these guys would have come in through all the different gates. When you or I come off the interstate at an exit and we come up to the red light where you're going to turn right or left, you've all had the experience of seeing a homeless person standing there with a little sign or something. And I bet that you've had the experience of over a week or so seeing the same person there two or three times, okay? If you've ever had that experience, you're recognizing, hey, I've seen that same guy there, not a different person. Sometimes they're different people. I've seen the same guy there a couple times. I've actually had the experience of going to a different exit and seeing the guy who the other day I'd seen at another exit, okay? And I recognize him. And that's only based on two or three exposures, this layman would have been there for at least a couple decades probably. He probably started being put out there to beg as a teenager, maybe even as a child. It could have been more than 30 years that he's been at that gate every day. It's been a long time. They know this guy. Even the chief priests, the religious leaders, they cannot deny it. The dilemma goes further in, in terms of things that they do not say. Peter has just said that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now is the perfect time to bring out the body, if you got one. They don't have a body. The empty, so this is a tangent, but the empty tomb is one of the biggest evidences of Jesus' resurrection. Even secular, uh, non-believing historians, for the most part, like 85 to 90% agree that the tomb was empty based on what they can see in the historical record. It was the number one way to 
refute Jesus' resurrection as produce a body. Now, some of you are going to remember that in Matthew 28, these same people leading the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, had paid money to the guards who had been at the tomb to spread a lie that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. Right now's the time to bring that up. He didn't rise from the dead. You stole the body. Make that allegation. Well, they're having a court thing. It's difficult. They had rules about evidence and stuff. And even as I say that, I'm trying to be fair to them. But they brought false charges against Jesus. So even lack of evidence doesn't stop them. But they don't make, they have no evidence to support a case that the disciples stole the body. And they don't even bring it up. They know that what he's saying is true even though they're not going to agree with it. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So the result is that when they had further threatened them, they let them go. They didn't even whip them or flog them in this case. That's going to come later as the persecution increases for the apostles. But they don't even do that. They threaten them, and then they let them go. And, of course, uh, Peter and John in verse 20 say, We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. They're not going to yield to their threats. Now, having covered all that, I want to draw out, um, if my PowerPoint will cooperate. Maybe I won't draw out. We seem stuck. There we go. I want to draw out some key thoughts from Acts 4, verse 5 through 22. I want to try to take this in a direction where we have something really to chew on, some application. Okay, so I've got three things I want to draw out. The first has to do with the exclusivity of the gospel. Peter has said, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And by the way, when he talks about salvation, the context they would have known he means forgiveness of sin and eternal life. He doesn't mean being saved from your lameness, the lame man having been healed. He doesn't mean being saved by the, from the Roman uh, rule. He doesn't mean that. And actually, in verse chapter 3, when he had the, the verse I had up there earlier, verse 19, Repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away. When he says salvation and saved, he's talking about what you normally think of, of salvation, being forgiven of your sins, entering a relationship with God, and having eternal life. Well, it's not just Peter that says this. This is a consistent doctrine in the New Testament. Jesus, in John 14, 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is even more exclusive. There's no way to God the Father except through me, Jesus Christ. Not me, Jesus Christ. Through Him. He is the way to God. He's the truth from God. And He's the life of God being offered to us. Highly exclusive statement. Um, Paul in Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Some of your translations might say the Gentiles. In the Jewish world, there were two types of people. There were Jews and there were Greeks slash Gentiles, everybody else. The Greek part, by the way, I think largely refers to the language. The Jews have their own language. Everybody else is speaking Greek. It was the language of the time. The Romans had Latin, but they also spoke Greek. It was the language of the world. 
of their known world. So, Paul is saying the power of God to save anyone, Jew or Greek, is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Fourth, I put before you John the disciple in his letter, 1 John. He says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life, what life? The eternal life. Every life, the rest of these two sentences, is the eternal life. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. So by substitution, he who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Put in the substitution, does not have eternal life. It's in Christ that we receive forgiveness of sin and have eternal life. Now, the reason I make a big deal of this And I need to find a piece of paper here real quick. There's a survey that came out in August of last year, August of 2021. Probe Ministries sponsored it. Uh, The Barna Group's the one that did the survey. And they found, so they defined born-again Christians this way. Sometimes in these surveys you wonder, are those born-again Christians really born-again Christians? Um, To be called born again, you had to have two things that you answered that were true, okay? The first is, have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today? People said, yes, they're candidates to be lumped in as born again. Second one was, what best describes your belief about what will happen to you after you die? If your answer in whatever words was in the bucket of this statement... I will go to heaven because I confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. If that was true, and you said yes to the first question, then they called you born again. Now, my bet is that probably everybody here who calls themselves a follower of Christ would have said yes to the first question, and your words might have been a little different to the second one, but you'd say, yeah, I'm in that bucket. Okay? What they found is that 60%... All right, i got to narrow it down further. This 60% number was for people 18 to 39, under 40, but an adult. They didn't survey children. So raise your hand if you're in that, that group. 18 to 40. Okay, that's a good number of you. For that generation of people who are in the born-again bucket, 60% did not believe that Jesus was the only way to be saved. believe there were other ways to be saved in addition to Jesus. Think Buddha, think Muhammad, think Hindu. Multiple ways to be saved. And so the reason I'm belaboring this is because I don't want anybody here to be mistaken on this. Now, you can claim to be a Christian and not agree with things in the Bible, but I want you to know... That if you're claiming to be a Christian and you think there is another way for someone to be saved other than Jesus Christ, you don't have a biblical worldview. You have departed from the teaching of the New Testament. We have Jesus, Peter, John, and Paul all in lockstep on this. No other way. Now, I I, I do want to say a couple things here because there's several possible explanations for this. One is people being ignorant 
of what the Bible really says. I don't want you to be ignorant. The second one is that a lot of times we don't want that to be true. We may know people who are Muslim. We may know people who are from a Buddhist background or Hindu or something else. And we don't want them to go to hell. We've become friends with them. We don't want that to be the case. But you can't let your wants get in the way of truth. Okay? Just because you want something to be a certain way doesn't make it that way. A third thing that I think is a major contributor to this 60% problem is our culture. We're bombarded with messages of pluralism. Pluralism means there's multiple ways to whatever the subject is. And in this case, pluralism means there's multiple ways to be right with God. So I just want to put before you that if you think that's the case, there's multiple ways to be, become right with God, you're out of step with what Jesus, Peter, John, and Paul said and taught. You're out of step with what the New Testament teaches. And that matters. That matters. Okay. Second thing, so salvation only comes through Jesus. Second thought that I want to take from this is about how they had a compelling drive to tell others about Jesus. I mean, they're all about it. They are passionate for the cause of Christ. Peter and John, this is the one case where it says, and John. So John is involved. I don't know whether it's one of them says half this, this, this what's on the screen, and the other says the other half, one sentence each, or one says all of it, and the other one goes, ditto, I'm all in. You know, but they're, Peter and John both say this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when I read that, it led me to ask the question that immediately popped into my mind was why? How is it that they are so passionate about the cause of Christ? What's compelling them to tell others about Jesus? And I think from the text here, there are three things. And I would just want to put these out before you. First is they knew it was true. They're eyewitnesses. I talked about this earlier. They have seen the risen Lord. They had been with him for three years. They've heard the things he said. They've seen his miracles. They knew it was true. They were right there when they said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So they knew it's the power of Christ that had healed the lame man. They knew it was true. Secondly, oh, 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 oh. so Acts 4.14, the religious leaders observed they had been with Jesus. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Second thing is they were commanded by the risen Jesus to be his witnesses. The closest place to that in our text is over in Acts 1, where Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. But in Matthew, he told them, go and make disciples. In John 20, 21, he told them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. On the note sheet, I give you passages in Mark and Luke. You've got pa- in the note sheet, you've got passages from each of the gospel after the resurrection where Jesus in one way or another is telling them to go be witnesses for him. So they have the command of the risen Jesus to be his witnesses. It's one thing to know something's true. 
It's another thing to add to that, I've been told by a risen person, rose from the dead, to go do this. All right. And then the third thing is they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.8 says that Peter, full, filled with the Holy Spirit, started to give that testimony that he gave. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, I, in my slides, I don't have, my next slide that I'm going to give you is application oriented. And I didn't have a good way to put these three things on one side and the other, the stuff on the next slide. So in the handout, I hope you, the notes, I hope you've written them down so you have them in front of you. Um, But the, the things on the next slide, they don't come directly from this text. And I think it's very important when teaching to make a distinction between what Scripture says and something I'm inferring or speculating Okay, it's okay to infer and speculate within reason. But it needs to not be stated as the Word of God. So this next slide is things that make sense to me. And I think if we had time, I could take you to verses for all of them. But they don't come straight out of this passage. These things come out of these passages, all right? And so from these things, I'm going to the next things. And there are four. Things that may help you be passionate for Jesus. First is regular time with Jesus. Um, It said in that Acts passage that they had been with Jesus. And I don't have it up there. But how are you with Jesus? Well, if you've been saved, if you profess faith in Christ, God has made your spirit come alive to him. And the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you. You have the spirit of Jesus in you, so he's with you. But are you spending time with him? They had been with Jesus where they heard from him and learned from him. For me, regular time with Jesus where I'm praying and reading the Bible, that's the being with him. That's where the intimacy is happening. Second thing is hiding God's word in your heart. In uh, Good News Club, this is one of the verses that we're teaching the kids over at South Columbia uh, the last couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks come, and they're learning verse 9 through 11. And verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have um, previously taught the hand illustration about hiding God's word in your heart. I'm not going to take time to go through all of it, but the five fingers are listening to the word as someone teaches it, reading God's word, studying God's word, memorizing God's Word, and then meditating. The thumb is the meditating that allows you to grasp something really strong. Hiding God's Word in your heart. The third thing is being convinced that Jesus' teachings are for you. Um, Sometimes you could read things like uh, Acts 1 verse 8, where he says, you should be my witnesses, and you can think, that was for them. That's not for me. And you can wrestle with that. Um, in um, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That was for them. It's not for me. And within some reason, there are some things in the New Testament, things Jesus says, that clearly are not for us. Although the Holy Spirit can still use that to bring some conviction and lead you to something. I'll give you one in one of the Gospels. I think it's in Matthew. Um, Jesus, uh, Peter, they're having this discussion about paying the temple tax. 
And Jesus tells Peter, go catch a fish and open his mouth and you'll find a coin. Go pay your and my temple tax. It'll be enough for both. So Peter goes and does that. I don't think Jesus is intending for any of us to do that because we don't have a temple and we don't pay the temple tax, okay? So but it's a real occurrence that happened in Scripture. And I do believe that in you reading that, having a quiet time in that passage, the Holy Spirit might take a principle there and lead you somehow through it. But that's not a general statement that all of us should be going and catching fish and paying our taxes that way, temple tax or other. Okay? But there are a lot of verses about being Christ's disciple that I think are universal to anyone following him. But you have to come to your own conclusion. And so if you find yourself sometimes resisting some of Christ's teaching, that's why I've got this here. You need to, to help you be passionate about Jesus. You've got to become convinced for yourself that his teachings are for you. And what I offer up here is John seven seventeen. Now, the context here is actually skeptics who aren't sure that they believe his word is the word of God. Okay? And he says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So, you've got to have a precursor, willingness to do God's will. If you are that way, then you will know of Jesus' teaching, that it really is from God. I'm applying that for us as believers if you have some resistance to things you read and you think, that's not really for me. Uh, that was just for them. I think if you, the more you become willing to do His will, the more the Holy Spirit will work in you to help you with that. Okay, and so just to offer you a personal example, I mentioned Matthew 28. Um, a guy I shared with a guy who was discipling me, not that I didn't believe the teaching wasn't for all of us that are believers, but I just I was struggling a little with it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. It clearly says up in verse 16, he was talking to his 11 disciples. And the guy pointed out to me that if I kept reading, it says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he said to me, David, is what he just told them about going and making disciples part of what he commanded them? Yeah. Well, then would that be part of what they're supposed to teach the more disciples? Well, Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, if you're willing to do his will and you're considering it before God, the Holy Spirit will assure you on that. Last thing is living a holy life, avoiding grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. In the notes, there's a couple verses related to that. And so now at this point, I need to wrap up. Um, I'm going to skip this part. And the battle for truth. The religious leaders knew what had happened, yet they chose to oppose the truth. I think they knew Jesus was the Christ. He just wasn't bringing the kingdom they wanted. They wanted a kingdom that rejected the Romans. They weren't looking for a spiritual kingdom. And they weren't looking for Jesus to be the leader. They wanted to be the leaders. Uh, I think they knew that he had risen from the dead. Why else pay money to... Promote a lie through the guards. Um, their goal is clearly stated in Acts 4.17. They say to see to it that it spreads no further among the people. They're not focused on the truth. They're focused on the minds of the people. 
They are battling for the minds of the people. And I suggest to you that it's the same today. Is this not the case today in our society? There is a battle for the minds of people, a battle for the truth. I believe at this point in my life that Ephesians 6, when it talks about our battles not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, if you look at that in its context, there's nothing in there about casting out demons. There's nothing in Ephesians 6 about taking back strongholds, territory. It's about truth. The battle is a battle for truth. You put on the belt of truth. You take up the breastplate of righteousness. You're fighting with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The shield of faith. Why does that extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one? Because in faith, you're believing and standing on what God has said. Truth. And at the end of that passage, Peter tells them, having put on all that armor, pray for me that I will make clear the gospel that I'm trying to share with people. Truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, another passage, 1 through 6, that's often used talking about spiritual warfare. It's clear if you go read that passage, he's talking about the battle of ideas, speculations that people have put up. There's nothing mentioned there about casting out demons. There's nothing mentioned there about taking about territory. The battle is a battle, the spiritual battle is a battle for truth. Now, there may be cases where things in your past, when people talk about taking, about taking back strongholds or territory that was lost in your days as a non-believer, there may have been lies that you've started to believe. That's the fiery darts from the enemy. His mode of operation is to deceive, to lie. So uh, there's a lot more I could say on that, but th- there's a battle for truth. So at this point, um, the section on prayer... I actually taught through this in our series on the marks of a healthy church. It was the last Sunday of May or first one of June. It's on our website. Uh, We could possibly talk more about this during uh, care group tonight. We'll see. But I've already taught it before, and we are out of time. So I'm going to pop all the way past all that. I want to show you one thing related to it. I think that this passage where they pray in verse 23 to 31 is a model prayer that we could follow. Pray about what's just happened in your life. That'd be an application of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Um, Start with praise of God. If you work your way through that prayer, it's baked in with praise. It's almost like, what's, what's the sandwich where you have bread and meat and then bread and then meat and then bread? Is that a club or something? A double decker? You know, in this prayer, there's praise of God that it starts with. Then there's some other stuff. Then there's praise of God. Then there's some other stuff. There's praise of God. It's baked in with praise of God. Um, they're telling God things that God says about himself. Then they connect scripture with just what just happened. What just happened was this inquisition from the religious leaders who are threatening them and telling them not to preach Christ. And they're connecting that with Psalm 2 where the nations are in an uproar resisting God, the King. So you think of something, some truth of God that connects with your situation and then pray that. And then last is when you finally get around to asking for something, ask with glory to God in mind. When they ask, when you get down to verse 
30. What they're asking for is that God will extend His hand to heal with signs and wonders. And that in verse 29, that they could speak God's word with confidence. In my verse, it says confidence. Your version may say boldness. In verse 31, their prayers are answered because the whole building shakes. That'd be a sign and wonder, wouldn't it? The whole building shakes right at that time. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. So, do you compromise on the exclusivity of the gospel? You know, there's several ways to compromise. There's some phrases that I just don't like. I'm going to mention them. These don't necessarily mean compromise. It depends on the context, okay? But... One of them is, it's all good. It's all good is a pluralistic phrase. Now, in the context where you use it, it may be true. But a lot of times, people use it's all good to make some argument, discussion, go away, to dismiss it while they walk this way. And it's not really all good. Okay? Another phrase is, it's all relative. Now, there are a few... Specific context where maybe that's okay. But in general, it's all relative is not good. It's not all relative. And the sentence itself, it's all relative, is a suicidal statement. It kills itself. It can't all be relative or else the sentence is relative, which means not everything. It falls apart. Another one is as long as it floats your boat. Now, that's a very pluralistic statement. People use that. We probably use that sometimes. In some contexts, it may be fine. But I'm putting these before you. I don't want us to be people who compromise on the exclusivity of the gospel. We should not say things that give people the appearance of our approval of a belief system that's going to lead them to hell. Okay? Um, do you have a compelling drive to tell others about Jesus? I went through these four things earlier. Even if you don't like my four things, this is a big question that's worth you considering. What will help you to be passionate about Christ? What will help you with that? Are you willing to fight for truth? We're in a culture where there's a truth battle going on. What are you doing to be ready? Thinking of 1 Peter 3.15. What are you doing to be ready? Uh, this is the list of prayer things I put up there. Do you pray for boldness? They prayed here. I love to pray things that I see prayed in Scripture. Here's a good one. I need to pray more. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all boldness. It's a good prayer. And last, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? Let me close this with a prayer and then we'll sing a song. Father, I thank you for giving us this passage in Acts 4. I thank you for preserving this story of Peter and John's boldness. It's a true account. And I thank you that we're able to read it. Holy Spirit, you're the same spirit that filled Peter and gave him the words to speak. And you dwell in each of us as your children. Help us, Lord, to have boldness, to speak with boldness the message of Christ. 
And I ask, Lord, that during the course of this week, you might lead each of us to have an encounter with someone, whether it's family, friends, co-worker, or even a stranger, where we can encourage someone towards Christ if they're not a believer, or encourage them in Christ if they are a believer. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.